Hi, I'm Carrie, your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we are skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. This season, we are exploring what it means to stay well and find healing after experiencing religious harm. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health support with a licensed professional. If you want to be part of the conversation, please follow the show on Instagram at your friends, the therapist pod, or send me an email at carrie at carriefillion.com. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. My guest today is Emily Maynard. This is Emily's second time on my podcast and will not be the last. Um, So let me give a little intro to Emily again for those of you who didn't listen to the first season or who, you know, need a refresher. Um, But Emily is a licensed therapist in California. She grew up at the intersection of evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity, and now she specializes in helping people heal from religious trauma. She loves helping smart, sensitive people embody new stories. And Emily, I I think I'm telling you this for the first time, but you were actually one of the people who inspired me to do a whole season just about religious harm and recovering from it. Because when we did our um, interview for the first season, at the end, we were like, we could talk for a lot longer. And you had these ideas in your head, of like, I want to talk about this and this. And I was like, yeah, we should make some space for that. Um, so here we are. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me back. And I'm so excited to be part of what feels like the community you're cultivating or curating for this season. There's so many people that I found through you who are talking about really similar things or talking about totally different ways of healing from religious trauma or different religions and different yes. traumatic experiences. And I'm happy to be back talking about more of this little part of it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I am really grateful for the little community that we're building too. It's nothing I ever expected. Um it has been so life-giving for me. Um and today we are going to talk specifically about dating after purity culture. Um but to set the stage, I would love to start with hearing a little bit about your relationship to high control religion, including any experiences you might have had growing up or later in life. Yeah, well, like like I said in my bio, is like I sort of understand mainstream evangelical world and, and then also the more, I don't know, I would call it severe fundamentalist side of things. I almost want to give you just like a list of all of the organizations that I participated in, like everything from Awana growing up in like Baptist churches primarily to Mm -hmm. IBLP conferences um, on the more fundamentalist side of things. And then really how purity culture entered my life. I mean, I remember like it just sort of being a given, right? That you don't have Mm -hmm. sex till marriage. Like I don't have any clear memory of being told that, Mm. but I have a deep sense of knowing in my body that there was something wrong with me. And I know I learned that early on, whether that was through, you know, indoctrination about this idea of original sin, or whether it was specifically about sexuality or this idea that there was something wrong with being a body or being a visible Mm. woman body. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Yeah, that word visible it stands out to me because there was this weird paradox where we you can't be invisible, right? But you were kind of expected to hide everything about you that was at all like womanly, even mm-hmm. at such a young age where like we weren't even women yet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so the the particular context where I think I experienced my most formative years was at a church in Oregon. Um, and my family started going as the church was forming. I was about 13, 12 or 13, something around there. And the it was all families like us. So quiverful, very conservative, mm. homeschool. Um, and the, the pastor of the church was Greg Harris, who was a leader in the homeschool movement nationally and the father of Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. So guess where he got those ideas as an 18-year-old young person? Uh, yes. From his father. So mm. those ideas of not just sexual purity or, you know, sexual abstinence, but this idea of emotional purity, modesty, um, really preventing the idea of like crushes and then mm. only allowing relationships to proceed in this highly structured, very father controlled system of courtship. Yeah. was how I learned about like relationships and mm-hmm. how one, you know, meets somebody that they want to be with or want to form a family with. Mm. So were you, I, I didn't know this about you, this connection to Josh Harris, um, who was also very influential in my <laughs> uh, purity culture upbringing, I guess, but in a different way, I sort of like sought that book out because I wasn't given any information and I was trying to find my own Christian way with no guideposts. So I like sought it out. It wasn't explicitly taught. Um, But so were you influenced by the book or more so by his dad and the teachings that also then influenced him to write the book? Yeah. So he's older than me to the point that he was already, I believe, like a pastor in Maryland by the time this church was forming that my family started attending. So I didn't grow up with him, but I certainly grew up with all of his younger siblings Mm -hmm. um, and his family. And I would say I was influenced by that whole world. I mean, certainly there are a lot of micro celebrities in that world. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're in like a small high control subculture, there's all these like people who've sort of made it big in the little pond. So certainly read his book, but was also influenced by other, I would say, courtship influencers. The Ludies were really big. Um, I remember going to speaking, going to conferences that they spoke at. Eric and Leslie Ludie, they had this weird story that now is even a little bit more disconcerting that I think she was a teenager when he sort of like chose her, picked her out Mm. um, as a person in their early 20s, maybe he was, he like chose this woman and talked to her father. And then they basically made this speaking and writing career based off of how good their way of doing things was, which, again, now feels a little bit more sinister that a that a person who is of age would be grooming and choosing Mm -hmm. a teenager at the time. Yeah, yeah, there were so many of those stories in that like in the literature and lore of that world of courtship. Yes. Yeah, there was, I mean, at least I kind of grew up with this idea that God had set someone aside for you, right? So it doesn't, like, age is just a number, 
right? If God has ordained that this relationship is to be, then like, that doesn't matter. We will like make it happen. Um, which yeah, is very sinister if you actually kind of take a step back. But if you're raised in this, it is so normal. And I'm wondering for you being raised in this culture, did it feel normal? Did you push back against it? Like, what was your relationship to purity culture at the time? Yeah, it, I mean, it certainly felt normal. And it was given to me as this idea of like, this is what God's best is, right? And who doesn't want God's best or the idea of like, mm-hmm. this is the best way to live or the right way to, to live. That's always been really compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were a few, I would say, cracks in the system. Um, I remember being a teenager and being like, well, maybe I want to date, right? Like maybe, mm-hmm. m- maybe I could sort of expand this idea. Like I was given this idea of idealized courtship, but there were parts of it that just felt a little bit strange to me mm. uh, that I knew I didn't want. Same with the idea of like not kissing anyone before you're married. I mean, I went to so many weddings. I was in weddings where the first kiss was like written in the program. The whole community like celebrated this idea that there were two people legally marrying who had never mm. kissed before that moment mm. before it was like this public proclamation of it. Um, and I and I remember just being like, okay, but maybe I might want to kiss somebody. Like, is mm-hmm. that really that bad? Like, it, I think there was a lot okay. of fear in the yeah. idea that like someone would choose me, like a man would choose me and I would have really no say in it because mm. he would hear the voice of God or my father would confirm this like godliness of it. And then I would maybe just get swept up in this system. So I think I, think I knew deep down that that wasn't what I wanted or that that wasn't even true or universally right. Mm, But I was in a community where I just like performed like, sure, I'm waiting for God's one. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm thinking maybe we should take a step back to and give the definition of purity culture before we started recording. We had sort of this, we wanted to define the term and then move forward. So I'll pause us here to define purity culture um, or at least give one definition of it, knowing that this is not the only definition. So go ahead. I know you have one ready and waiting. Yeah. So this is from Emily Joy Allison, who wrote a book called Hashtag Church Two. And I think it's a great book to walk you through kind of the history of the development of purity culture, um, how it enables cultures of abuse in churches or Christian organizations, and then what to do about it, or how do you sort of start moving away from those ideas. So Emily defines purity culture as the spiritual corollary of rape culture created in religious environments that teach complete sexual abstinence until monogamous marriage between a cisgender heterosexual man and a cisgender heterosexual woman for life or else. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. (laughs) I, I'm I'm curious where your mind goes when you hear the or else part. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways we're living in the or else right now with the Christian rights um, movements to remove access for trans people to have medical care, for the mm. legal removal of any legal rights in a lot of states for people who can get pregnant to make choices about those pregnancies or how to proceed with them. Um, certainly, you know, there's 
ideas of restricting same-sex marriage again that a lot of conservatives would love to get back to. Yeah. I yeah. think that the or else happens not just on an individual level where people are shamed for their own sexualities or sexual development or sexual identity, but also on this um, very political level that there's mm. an or else mm. that I that I can never get away from. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm interestingly my mind went to the what um and lots of religions kind of participate in purity culture. It's not just Christianity, but just to be clear, you and I are speaking from our own perspectives growing up in mm-hmm. Christianity. And growing up, the or else was like very um well, it was eternal, right? And it was this mm. spiritual or else, like being separated from God, going to hell. Not um, if you don't follow all the rules of purity culture, you will not have a fulfilling sex life or a fulfilling mm-hmm. relationship. Um, like, gosh, when you take the spiritual, the relational, the personal, the political, like these are some high stakes that we're talking yeah. about. Um, oof. Yeah. And I know that you had put out to your Instagram community um, an invitation to ask us questions. And one of the questions that came through was the roots of purity culture. So what do you think about where purity culture comes from? Knowing that neither you or I are like biblical or theological scholars, we are therapists, um, Mm -hmm. but who have lived this and really studied it. So what do you think about the roots of purity culture, where it comes from? Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's certainly not unique to Christianity and it's not unique to any sort of religion. I think there is a strong um, theme throughout history of controlling women's bodies and controlling Mm. the power that people who um, have feminine wisdom or can, you know, grow and birth humans. Like there's always this idea that that purity culture is really just one expression of patriarchy and control Mm -hmm. that certain things are not allowed and therefore they must be controlled or Mm -hmm. they're too powerful to sort of be equal or negotiated equally. Yeah. 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 I'm glad that you named the, it's, it is about power, right? Purity culture really is about power and sex and bodies are the tools that are like mm-hmm. being manipulated. Um, and while it affects women, I think much differently than it affects men, it is not good for men either. Right. Like patriarchy purity culture is not healthy or helpful for men either. Um, and I'm going to have a whole other episode actually talking about the impacts of purity culture on men. So we don't have to spend okay. a ton okay. of time there. Um, but if there's anything you want to say to that point that might be helpful, because we are going to talk about dating and dating can happen between a man and a woman, you know, like a woman and a woman, a man and a man. So briefly, and, and you know, all genders not named. Um mm-hmm. Would you want to say just briefly what you think of when you hear that purity culture affects men too? Like, what are the ways that come up for you? Yeah, I think there's so much shame in it for men because I think it reduces the male experience to one that like in order to be a part of this group of 
men or maleness, you have to be using your power against other people in so many ways, Mm. um, including your sexuality. And I think, you know, everyone has a right to their own sexual identity and experience and sort of stories of their own sexual being. And anytime that's taken away from anyone and co-opted into systems of power, whether you're put on the aggressor side or the submissive side against your will, that's a a dissolution of the rights of a person. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess maybe that's a little abstract, but but yeah. I've talked to men who felt so much shame. They felt so much fear and aversion towards their own sexual desires or experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime we feel profound shame or aversion or fear of something in our own bodies and we try to shut it down, like it often emerges in really difficult or challenging or sort of um, harmful ways, I guess I would mm-hmm. say that. Like if you are determined to not build any sexual language with yourself, then that sexual language might show up in a way or might be expressed in a way that's actually against your values or would lead you to a place that's more harmful than yeah. just learning how to live at peace with your sexual desires and find an ethical way to express those in whatever context you're in. Yeah. I also think so many men, like they weren't taught consent. They weren't taught pleasure. And so they end up in these long-term relationships with really difficult, um, they end up in these long-term relationships without the ability to communicate about these foundational principles that I think are very connected to like healthy sexuality of consent and pleasure, right? There's a lot of people who don't have just anatomical knowledge about their body or their partner's bodies, and therefore mm. they miss places to connect or be enraptured with each other mm. because they don't they don't understand how like somebody with a clit has an orgasm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. So again, I will talk more about that on a on an upcoming episode. Um, but I think that's a good foundation to kind of dive into. Like, okay, if you've started to unravel purity culture a little bit and are trying to date after deconstructing or through deconstructing, what do you think are some of the ways that growing up in or experiencing purity culture impacts people's relationship to dating and relationships. Yeah, there are a couple. I think the first thing that comes to mind is is uh, the lack of education. So yes. assume that whether you grew up in Christianity or whether you grew up in a secular school environment, we have so much more high quality sexual information than you experienced growing up. So start mm-hmm. with education. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the website Scarletine, um, and I always send people there because I think that's a really, one, gender and sexual identity inclusive space to learn, and it's mm-hmm. also geared toward young people. And I think that there's less shame in recognizing, like, oh, I just need to learn sort of what a young person would learn about this now, mm-hmm. rather than being stuck in the fact that there's so much I don't know about yes. bodies or sexuality. Yeah. Yeah, I that's a great resource. And I'll definitely link that in the show notes. Um, and yeah, I want to actually before we move further in this clarify that when you and I are talking clarify to the listeners that when we're talking about coming out of purity culture, we're not just talking about sex, um, or heterosexual relationships, like 
purity culture impacts our relationship to our own gender identity and expression, our sexual orientation and, and expression, like kinks, um, fantasy, pleasure, sexual or not. Um, so this is like a really expansive topic and it, it impacts folks in, in lots of different ways outside of just P and V sex mm-hmm. and marriage. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because purity culture was never given to us as a like, Hey, maybe you should think critically about who you want to do specific sexual acts with. Right. Like for mm. us who grew up in evangelical or fundamentalist Christianity or any other high control religion, it was an entire comprehensive system of how all relationships should work from mm-hmm. the time you start pursuing them till the time you die. Yeah. 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 What else do you, in your, cause I know that you have experience, but you're also really studying this to like spread education and information for folks. Um, so what are, are some of the other ways that purity culture impacts relationships like outside of sex? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the second thing that comes up is the idea, even that dating or relationships are that the purpose of dating is to like find the one. Mm. So I think that's the next thing to deconstruct after you're getting your your own like education about sexuality. It's deconstructing this idea of the one and the idea that relationships are failures if they end because mm. we're humans. All of our relationships will end. Right. Like we, we can have relationships with people who, you know, have died, but I also think that endings are a very normal part of relationships. And when we put so much effort into here's how to develop the start of relationships, here's how to do the exciting part, right? The fun, like brain Mm -hmm. chemical part of relationships. Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about the fact that like, and most of those will end Mm -hmm. pretty much all of those will end. If you are dating, the majority of the experiences that you have with dating will not be with somebody who is a long-term partner. Very rare Ah. cases. Maybe you just like meet someone and you click and that's fine. But, but recognizing there are so many more stories and that there's so many people that can bring value and meeting and fun and new experiences Mm -hmm. or great stories to your life who are Mm -hmm. not the one. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. just really mm-hmm. opens up a much more rich and I think a little less pressured experience of meeting people. Because when I started dating in my 20s, I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I'm not going to do this courtship thing. Like I deconstructed that part. But I remember, you know, talking to my girlfriends and they'd be like, oh, did you meet your husband tonight? Right. On a first date with someone, which mm-hmm. is such an absurd question because that implies that you could know that sort of thing about right. a person you are just meeting in a context that you are just exploring. So really reframing yeah. ideas around like, did you have a nice time? Like, what was fun about that? Can you practice being yourself in different contexts with different people? Can you learn more about different experiences or things happening in your city, right? There were Mm. shows that I went to or sports games that I watched or restaurants that I went to and I was dating a lot that I never would have encountered in any other space Mm. in my life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I really appreciate that, that experience that you share. And yeah, I think that purity culture doesn't just impact our ability to find like a romantic partner, but I 
have noticed the impact on even just friendships. Like I kind of grew up and I think this is partially culture at large and partially like evangelical culture, but that relationships can exist between a man and a woman as just friendship. Right. And I think that is a really damaging um like holdover from purity culture that we feel like we can't have friendships with people of a variety of genders. Um, and, and this I think is part of where specifically like male, female relationships, I was taught to like see men as um, basically people who can't control their sexual urges and predators and like unsafe to be around. <laughs> it's such a mind fuck when you think, you're told you can only be with a man as a right. cisgender woman. And yet like you can't really trust them because they're just so visual and they're just, their appetite for sex is unquenchable. It's yeah, it's, it plays a lot of mind games. I think with even just how we approach people as mm-hmm. people, not just like sexual beings. Um Anyway, yeah. I'm, not, I'm like vomiting all this information. No, that's As fine. you're talking, it's digging up a lot. <laughs> it makes me think too of like how I think once my experience was that once people found the one, they would remove themselves from the power or, or beauty of like friendship with me too, mm, right? That there was this yes. idea that like once you were a woman who had found your like heterosexual monogamous like prize in life you Mm. didn't really couldn't really spend a lot of time with Mm -hmm. your other female friends or your other friendships because your life needed to be about this one person in this one relationship and Mm. I think there's so much pain in people that I've talked to about friendships that they lost because somebody got a boyfriend or they were you know they got married Mm. and they just like vanished yeah and there wasn't this idea that like relationships can evolve or relationships can be maintained even as life gets more complicated or as you have other obligations in your world. Mm -hmm. And that was really, I think that was just really painful. Yes. As somebody who was like single longer than most of the the women that I grew up with in that like tiny little church. Mm, Yeah. I, I totally relate to that. And I, relate in some ways to being on the other side of that of being the one who started dating and kind of just decided that my other relationships were no longer as important and that is a yeah that's a loss that's hurtful to the people that like kind of got abandoned and it's it hurts the person who's doing the abandoning because I think another myth that um, purity culture but again the culture at large really emphasizes is that there is one person out there who will meet all your needs. And that's just not true. And that's so much pressure to put on a relationship. Oh. Um, so what are, what do you think are some challenges people face if they are coming out of a purity culture context, but want to start dating in a different way, dating or pursuing friendship, other types of relationships? Yeah, I think once you've got some good sexual education and you have deconstructed this idea of the one, I think it's really important to spend some time figuring out how you show up in relationships. Mm -hmm. And rather than just like seeking someone who will love you, 
because I, I hear a lot of people, they're just like looking for somebody who's safe or looking for somebody who really gets them, looking for somebody who will act lovingly towards them. And none of those things are wrong to want, but I think it's also important to put some effort into thinking about like, how do you show up in these relationships? Because one of the things that purity culture taught us to do really well is conform to a standard that was not our own. And I think yes. people can bring that into dating very easily. They are mm. people pleasers or they're maybe through a history of trauma or just a highly sensitive type of person. They're really good about reading the room and conforming to the expectations of the other person that they are observing without even realizing they're doing that. Mm. So one of the things that I think was really important for me to de deconstruct in dating was this idea that like I had to be good and polite. <laughs> and one of my most formative mm. dating experiences that I I'm so proud of was when I like left a date 30 minutes in because the person just wasn't listening to me. <laughs> and I had all these messages about like, no, you need to give people another chance or you need to like be polite. You need to give people time. And really that was a moment of standing up for myself and saying like, maybe this person was just having an off night. I am not criticizing their entire being. I'm just saying this was no longer fun for me. Mm. And I was not enjoying myself and I was not enjoying my time there. And I could just say, thank you so much. I think I'm going to leave now. And that that was really important and powerful and something I could be proud of and not something that I had to be ashamed about or worried that I was like judging another person mm. because my time was just, just as important as this other person's. And yeah. I could honor that and go spend my time doing something that I found meaningful or fulfilling. That didn't mean I could, like didn't have the skills to stick it out mm. or, you know, couldn't give people a second chance. It just meant I was going to go do something else at that point. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That you valued your own time and your own pleasure enough to know, like, this actually isn't what I want to be doing with my time right now. This isn't serving me in this moment. And that's okay. Because when you take out the, like, I'm looking for a husband or I'm looking for a lifelong partner that like that makes pressure so high, the stakes so high, like in a situation like that, I imagine a, a purity culture version of you or I might be like, but what if he is the one like right. in the first 30 minutes are just a little off, like I might have missed it. Um, so much pressure. So I'm curious how you got from being in you know, the I kissed even goodbye sort of like mindset to this more expansive view of dating. How did you transition out of purity culture in terms of like your dating and your relationship life? Yeah, I think at the time I was reading a lot of self-help books mm. <laughs> or a lot of books around relationships, right? Because I had been exposed to all these very evangelical ideas about you know, I was reading Sacred Marriage and the Five Love Languages, Love and Respect, and these very purity culture infused ideas of relationships. And so I was like, well, I got to read another subset of ideas. So reading, you know, the Gottman's work on researching like what actually brings people together or or causes separation in relationships that exist. Um reading like Codependency No More, a lot of, you know, self-help books from the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s that Maybe I would have a slightly different take on now, but I think we're really helpful in just like taking my brain from one way of thinking and forcing it to think something different. I was reading a lot of like 
feminist literature, second wave feminist literature. I was reading Bell Hooks. I was reading Betty for Dan. I was like, just really trying to say, okay, I know what, what evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity thinks about relationships. Like, but other people have other ideas too that I could consider and maybe find value in. Um, mm. And then the second thing that I did was really formative was I um, did a 12-step program. Mm. And that was one of the first times where um, I was in a group who were using the 12-step model as a way of like personal and spiritual formation. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways to use that model. But what I really liked about that was that it just gave me this flow of reflection of community and of believing that like I was a more complex person than just this single story of purity or not doing things or, you know, outside of, of Christianity. Um, I don't think we, I don't think we have a lot of like alternatives for personal formation Mm, yeah, that are yeah. as free and accessible as the twelve-step model is, and I know there's people who really dislike that model or or find it very unhelpful, and I I can honor that, but it's also something that was useful for me. Yeah, and you know, of course, we think of the twelve-step model in the context of like addiction recovery. Is that the context that you're talking about it in, or was it something a different type of? context. I mean, I was certainly introduced to it through the Al-Anon model, but it also shows up in a lot of work about um, deconstructing like dysfunctional family experiences. Mm. And then I did it in, in the context of like a group of people who were like, let's just a group of women who were like, let's, let's use this model as sort of a personal and spiritual growth mm. workbook or experience to, to do together to like guide us and reflect and come together. Yeah. Oh, that's really unique. And I, I think probably one of the important things there and correct me if I'm wrong, but was doing it in community. Yeah. But that I imagine was, was pretty significant to not yeah. just be reading the self-help book on your own, um, but mm -hmm. to be in community with other women. Yeah. Mm. Um, let's see, we have some other questions that came in on Instagram so I'd love to address this one, um, which is how do you love your body and not be ashamed of it if you were raised in purity culture? Because we haven't talked a ton about this aspect of purity culture yet, but it definitely um, influences how you view and think about your own body. So how would you address that question? Wow, that's so complex. And I love that question because my mind goes so many <laughs> different ways. Like, what does it mean to love something? Like, what is love? Is love a feeling about your body? Mm. Is it... Um, is it actions you take towards your body? Is it, I, I, I don't even know. Like, I think it could yeah. be, I, I think it has to be both, right? Like, I think you can care for your body, even if you don't feel loving towards it. Yeah. You can understand that your body has dignity in a world that often seeks to like de-dignify and abuse bodies. Mm. Um, but I also think it has to be more than just something that's emotional. Cause mm -hmm. I think you can feel all sorts of different ways about your body. Mm -hmm. When shame comes in, I mean, I'm sort of of the mindset of Brene's Brown, Brene Brown's work has been very influential to me. The idea that shame is about disconnection and that one way to push through shame is through connection. Like saying like, I'm going to communicate how I feel about my body today to somebody who's safe 
or to somebody who gets it. And just as we were talking about, I think community is really powerful in healing from purity culture. Because when we all come together and say, purity culture made us feel these things about our bodies, but we're going to talk about them, we're not going to hide, and we're going to believe that there is more to our bodies than what purity culture said, that that is a practice of loving your body and of unlearning those harmful messages and of rebuilding something that is better. Mm, Yeah. And what you mentioned earlier is that education, educating yourself is really an, an important part of kind of deconstructing purity culture. And I think that that can be a really important part of learning to love and accept your body as well. At least it was for me. Like once I started to learn about the body, about my body specifically, about the female, the menstrual cycle, I suppose can happen in anyone with a, with a uterus. Um, when I started to learn about my own sexual anatomy, it's like, whoa, our bodies are really amazing. And here's all these things that like we were never taught. And for me, it was really hard not to at least have some awe towards my body, if not love. Mm-hmm. Once I learned like all the amazing things that she could do and all the amazing ways that through chronic illness, she actually helped me get out of um, harmful situations. Um, so yeah, really getting to know your body, I think in as if it is a relationship with another person. Jamie Lee Finch, um, someone who's been pretty influential in my deconstruction, says to refer to your body as, like, that your body is a person. So if you use Mm. pronouns like she, her, they, him, rather than it, to, like, Mm -hmm. personify your body, um, that that can be a helpful way to reconnect with your body. Yeah. Is there anything more you want to say to that question although we could probably spend a whole you know a whole series talking about that anything more you want to say about how to love your body and not feel shame about your body I think just remembering that it's a process that you probably spent 10 15 20 25 maybe 30 more years Mm -hmm. in purity culture and that it's not supposed to happen overnight that learning mm. something new, learning, as Hilary McBride, McBride talks about, the, the wisdom of your body, that to learn something about your body and how much it knows and what it actually is doing, it's going to take time. And that's okay. Mm. You are on the path and it will feel more and more normal. And you're also never going to arrive because your body's always aging mm-hmm. and changing, right? And so, It's not something that you'll just like one day wake up and feel like you love your body and you have no shame anymore, Mm. but that you can learn to trust the rhythms or cycles of growth and change and bring in other ideas, respect, kindness, love, all those things make a lot of space for your body Mm. to just be what it is right now. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. And I think that Um, If people are wanting to explore any of these topics more, like therapy is a great place for that. But there's also other ways of healing. But like, this is work that is ongoing. You know, I know both of us are always doing work around this. Like even those of us who are kind of in this field professionally are still on that journey ourselves. Um, Another question that we had is around how to raise children um, better than we were raised. 
Mm-hmm. So the this came from a parent who was raised in purity culture, wanting to know how do I raise my kids better, not in purity culture. Um, what are your thoughts about that, Emily? Yeah, the first thing that came to, comes to mind is that doing your own work here really matters mm-hmm. because your kids don't have the same innate aversion to sexuality that you have. And so learning how to deal with your own impulses or reactions or those old messages popping up, those are that is worthwhile work because that is mm. what's going to help protect your kids from experiencing like, oh, there's something wrong with my body or like I shouldn't have sex or I'm not allowed to like think about sexuality outside of just this one act, right? Like mm. so educating yourself about um other ways of thinking. I know there's some great, there's different curriculums out there for teaching kids sexual ethics at an age appropriate level. And, you know, certainly education about their bodies at an age appropriate level. Uh, But it makes me think of one of my friends who told me, she said, I want my kids to be the most informed on the playground. (laughs) I don't ever want them to be like, wait, what? And so she just chose to introduce sexual education really early and mm. always talked about, you know, consent and privacy and these things that kids can really learn. Um, yeah. And I, I just think that that sentiment is is so great that I want your kids to already have positions about their own autonomy or what's acceptable to them from an early age, you know, asking mm. permission to help them or reminding them that they don't have to hug somebody that they don't want to hug. Mm-hmm. Um, asking, you know, what, what do you want to know at an early level? And then just providing a lot of education for them. I know somebody mm-hmm. else who was like, you know, when my kids were getting interested in bodies, I made sure I had a lot of classic art coffee table books mm-hmm. around because I wanted them to see the beauty and the majesty of the human form through art rather than pornography. Because if they were seeking out, you know, what do different body parts look like? Right. The risk of raising kids now is that they would have access to really harmful or exploitive images. Yeah. And so how can you make sure your kids have access to less exploitive images of bodies or even sexuality? Mm-hmm. Again, how and where you do that is going to be really unique to you and to the your kids' ages and and beliefs about, you know, what they're interested in. But there are ways to probably it's probably not possible in our culture that's so sex negative and and you know so like homophobic to really introduce like a no shame experience of sexuality but i think you can do a much less shame experience of sexuality yeah. than we got certainly yeah absolutely and um you know i'm not a, a parent myself but for anyone who has sort of already started raising their kids in purity culture and is now starting to question that like you can change your approach at any time. And depending on your children's age, you can even address like that you've changed your mind. I think that can be really powerful for kids to see that like, it's okay to like think and grow and change how we approach certain things. So like it's never too late to start. Yeah. Like what, what you were just talking about, Emily, this sort of like unshaming, I guess, um, around bodies and sexuality and sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, so good. 
before we dive into um, the rapid fire questions that I have for you that are totally unrelated to purity <laughs> culture, um, any final recommendations, thoughts, advice you might have for folks who are continuing to want to explore this or are in the process of dating themselves? Yeah, I think it can be really helpful to remember that we grew up in a context where we weren't taught relationship skills. Mm. We were taught that sameness of belief or sameness of, you know, belief about religion or bodies or sexuality was really the most important thing in any kind of relationship in your church community mm. and in romance, in friendship. Like high control systems rely on sameness to protect themselves and to prevent people from asking questions. So know that if you grew up in a high control context or dysfunctional family, you might need to consciously work on your relationship skills. Like mm. I was talking about the ability to show up as yourself, the ability to be honest, to not conform to somebody's perceived expectations of you, but to find other ways of like, being genuinely you in relationships mm. and learning skills around conflict, learning skills around communication, learning skills around, um, especially if you were raised as a woman, your voice was probably silenced in certain ways, like learning how to speak up and how to trust that you have a right to do that and that there's an ethical way to do that, to navigate difference and conflict, mm. to detach from this idea that the only way you get to have relationships is if you conform, but that mm. there's actually a lot of way to have deeply meaningful relationships around difference or uh, I keep bringing up the word conflict, but I think that's because I work mm. with so many people who are conflict avoidant mm -hmm. and what they're doing is they're missing out on a closer experience of relationships that happens through genuine communication and repair after harm yes. and that actually builds something stronger in your friendships, in dating or romance and in your relationship mm. with yourself. Yes. Yes. And do you have any um, recommendations for resources about where people might start to explore some of these ideas? Uh, <laughs> I know I put yes. you on the spot. <laughs> I'm like one. looking back at my bookshelf is behind me. There's so many. I mean, mm. I think if you're if you're interested in um, learning more about sexuality and you're somebody who has a vulva and a vagina come as you are is really good. Yep. There's also a book that I really think is helpful called Better Sex Through Mindfulness by Dr. Lori Brado. Mm. And that has a lot of really practical skills in it about developing the ability to focus on pleasure and to sort of sustain pleasure. If you're somebody who grew up with the idea of purity culture that you know, sex was for a man or for not for you or not something that was like really built for your pleasure. I think it's like, it's a lot of effort, but you can learn through mindfulness to pay attention to things that feel good in your body and how to hold on to those. Mm. For relationships, there's so many books. I might give you a list if you want to cut yeah, this. Like I might, absolutely. we might come back to this. Yeah. I can put a list in the show notes um, okay. of whatever whatever you might recommend. And I, I will yeah. definitely, the first Please. one that comes to mind for me is Polysecure. Yeah. Um, it's a great one for exploring attachment and, and what relationships could look like outside of um, monogamy, mm -hmm. um, which is 
I think, a whole other facet of undoing purity culture that we could talk about, uh, but won't today. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, there's, I think the, the, um, the short answer here is there's a lot out there. There's a, if you can ex- imagine a topic, there's probably been some sort of resource created, but we will definitely put some in the show notes for starting places. Oof. All right. To sort of transition us out of the depths <laughs> and into a lighter space, do you have some time for some quick rapid fire questions so we can get to know you on a different Absolutely. way? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Emily, what song would be the background music for your life today? Today? Well, this week I've been on a Casey Musgraves kick, and mm. I love the song Golden Hour. Okay. Um, I think there's a little bit of me that's longing for summer. Even in Southern California, we don't have summer year round. It's raining today. <laughs> and I just want some of that like warm, sunny, peaceful mm. feeling that I get when it's warm outside. Mm, okay. Golden Hour, Casey Musgraves. What is the weirdest food combination you enjoy? You know, I'm not super weird about food. I feel like I'm pretty traditional. Like chocolate and <laughs> peanut butter is a classic, but always, always good. Um, I'm really happy putting like kimchi or sauerkraut on eggs. Okay. But again, yeah. that's I think that's pretty normal. So I know. Nothing too yeah. weird. Yeah. Cool. Um, if you had to get a tattoo today, what would you get? This is so funny because I'm like, if I knew, I would be getting it right now. <laughs> That's funny because but, clearly uh, I, I came up with this question as someone who has a lot of tattoos and I would just like spontaneously get a random thing. So if you yeah. if you had to pick something. <laughs> if I had to pick something, well, I really like the only tattoo I have is very about the pl- about the places that I've been. So I like mm. place centric tattoos. So the one I have is. Um, from the Pacific Northwest where I grew up and then now I live in Southern California. So maybe like a California poppy. Oh, beautiful. Something botanical or natural, I think. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, what is one item on your bucket list right now? Um, I would like to visit all of the Disneyland's. So Disneyland Paris and uh, Disneyland uh, Japan. Oh, very cool and very like Southern California. Of yes, <laughs> it is a place um, of pure capitalistic joy, and <laughs> I allow myself that occasionally. Yes, <laughs> at least you embrace it. Um, what is one thing you are reading or watching right now? Right now, I'm watching this show that is a reality show, but it's called The Traders, and I have never enjoyed a reality show except for an occasional Bachelorette experience in the past. Um, But this show really encapsulates what I loved as a young person, which were like those murder mafia group games where like everyone had to close their eyes and someone was chosen. Then you had to figure them out. So it's like that on a larger scale, Alan Cumming is the host and he is just like perfectly dressed and having so (laughs) much fun. And I think if I had a lot more money than I have, I would like rent castles in Scotland and bring groups of people together and be like, we're playing a murder mystery game this weekend. So I I don't know if you're just like, again, pure absurd fun. Find the traitors. It's on Peacock. Mm, amazing. Um, what is something that strangers often incorrectly assume about you? That I am an extrovert. Mm. So I will have so much fun and really enjoy connecting with you. And then you might not hear from me for a month because I will just be all alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
What emoji do you use the most? I think of it as the quizzical emoji, the one that's sort of, hmm, just got Mm -hmm. got a finger up on the face and is a little bit like, what's, what are you doing there? Uh, that, (laughs) That expresses a lot of what I feel these days. Yes. I think whenever I search for that one, I type in, huh. Yes. It never finds it, but that's what I think of. Like, hmm. yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um, what is your favorite scent? Your favorite smell? My favorite smell would be like a forest. Like, I love mm. the smell of pine trees and fir trees. I mean, I'm from the Northwest, so that very mossy, foresty pine scent. Love it. Feels like home. La- and last question: What is your favorite place on the planet? My favorite place is the Rose Garden in Portland, Oregon. There's a view of Mount Hood and when all the roses are blooming, it just Mm. smells amazing. You see the city skyline, you see the mountains and the trees, just encapsulates the place that I'm from and the place where I feel like I was made. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, Emily, it has been so great to talk with you. I know you're coming back again. for another episode, but thank you so much for being here for this one, for really, you know, sharing your wisdom and experience. If people want to connect with you outside of this space, where, where can folks find you? Yes, I am on Instagram and threads at Emily Maynard LMFT. And my therapy website is emilymaynardtherapy.com. Awesome. I'll link those in the show notes. Um, And I look forward to having you back in the coming weeks to talk about making friendships as an adult after leaving high control religion. So a little teaser for anyone who wants to, you know, come back later on. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening. This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod. And you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy or my website, CarrieFillion.com. I am committed to keeping the show ad free and accessible to everyone. So if you would like to make a donation to support the work of your friend, the therapist, you can find a link to my PayPal in the show notes. You can also support the show by listening and subscribing on Substack, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. If this show has been helpful for you, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Your support means the world. Until next time, take care and stay well.